Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be finishing up this chapter today. And what we've come to at the end of Hebrews chapter 12 has been called the climax of the whole letter. The rhetorical climax of the whole letter. If you're into literature, into the way that, that especially like ancient literature works, this is, the, this is the part of the letter where you would be really geeking out. Unfortunately, because of this, for the sake of time and my own insufficiencies as a literary critic, you're not going to get a lot of the beautiful details that you could get if you knew what you're looking at and had time to really dig into this passage. But I hope that as we work through it together, for those of you who have been part of this series since the beginning of the year, you're going to be hearing allusions to things you should be familiar with by now, to the sort of main themes all through the letter because he brings them all around here at the end of chapter 12. What he's come to here at the end of chapter 12 is a bird's eye view of everything that Jesus gives to us when we trust in him. A bird's eye view of what we already possess in him and a bird's eye view of what we will possess when Jesus returns. Finally, what we get in this passage is yet another warning not to miss out. Because what Jesus gives to us now and what Jesus will give to us when he returns is only really good news for us if we know how to claim it, if we know how to put our stake into what he offers. So those are the things we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. If you found the passage, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The passage starts out with another, yet another, compare and contrast. We've been seeing these all through the letter to the Hebrews. In fact, I think one of the things we've said about Hebrews is that you could see the whole thing as a, a great big compare and contrast paper. It's fitting that at the climax of the letter, where he's summarizing where he's been, it would be with yet another comparison. 
The, the gist of this comparison is to show us where we have come if we trust in Jesus. And the comparison that he gives us is a comparison between two mountains. Between Mount Sinai, the place where God met with Israel to give them the law. A place not named here, but indicated here. And Mount Zion, the place where God's temple rests. The center of Jerusalem. The symbolic presence of the Lord. It's a comparison between two mountains that stand for two covenants, between two different, vastly different ways of relating to God. What we've been saying all along in Hebrews is that the really perspective of the whole Bible, but especially here in Hebrews, is that every problem that we have, from, from physical to emotional and psychological, all of the things that are wrong with this world can trace their source back to a fundamentally broken relationship that we were made to enjoy and that we have corrupted by our unfaithfulness, by a sort of spiritual adultery. The way of understanding everything that's wrong with the world is to to see it as rooted in that place. And the way of understanding how Jesus sets everything to rights is to understand him as coming to heal that broken relationship. And, And these two mountains, two covenants, two ways of understanding how to relate to God picture everything that Jesus has, has accomplished in a sort of before and after. So I want to make sure we get a good, clear handle on these details. I wish we had more time than we do, but we're going to do it as, in, in, in as, quickly, as quick and in sort of overview fashion as we can. So the first three verses we just read, verses 18 to 21, these are the before. They are a very clear allusion to Mount Sinai. The place that God gave the law. It's all, of the, all of these sort of physical things that are described here are, are found in the Old Testament account of what it was like for Israel to be at the foot of Mount Sinai and to meet with God. And it is not a pretty picture. The author describes what it is to have contact with a holy God as people who are thoroughly unholy. These images... These images belong to the story of Mount Sinai, but they also find a place in our own experience, not necessarily of God. We'll say something about that in a minute, but just our experience of of life. These images of of darkness and fire and gloom and tempest, we know what those mean, don't we? And they create a sort of sense in us. I couldn't get ready for this. I couldn't study this passage this week without thinking about all the images I've seen of Hurricane or Superstorm or Frankenstorm or whatever, Sandy that just destroy the Northeast. This describes a blazing fire that met with the people of Israel. Did anybody see those images, especially in Queens, of entire neighborhoods being consumed by a fire that wouldn't stop, that destroys everything in its path and can't be quenched? Israel also saw darkness. Doesn't darkness have a feel to it? When you can't see anything? Or did anybody see the images of lower Manhattan without power? It was eerie, almost post-apocalyptic, to see all those buildings sort of silhouetted by the moon, but completely black. We know what darkness means. We know what gloom feels like. A hopelessness that sees reality and can't change it. We know vividly now with those images in our mind what a tempest is getting at. Do we need to say more than what we saw Sandy do when it was storming in on the northeast? To what was seen by Israel now are added some images for what they heard. A voice crying out to them. 
a trumpet sounding an alarm, a voice that spoke to them words that they begged to stop because this voice meant death to them. This voice told them of something so holy that even if the mountain where God was meeting with them was to be touched by an animal, much less a human being, he would be killed. To approach God on this mountain meant death. And even Moses, the man set apart to stand between God and his people, was terrified, trembling with fear at the sights and the sounds of that place. What are we seeing here? The images are images that we can all relate to. But they're not images we're used to relating to God, are they? In our culture, God is often little more than, uh, one way I've heard it described, a sort of college buddy with good stock tips. In church even, God is more often described as a loving father, as a tender shepherd, things that are true and beautiful and that we must latch onto. Then he is described, as our passage describes him, as a consuming fire who is thoroughly unsafe for those who are unholy. Yes, God is defined by love. But in the Bible, the love that defines God is not first and foremost a love for us that is unconditional and always nothing but yes, as if he were some overindulgent grandfather, but a love for all that is good and right and true. And it's that very love for all that is good and right and true that on the flip side, when confronted with things that are not true, that are not good, that are corrupting and evil and corrosive, burns with a hatred for all that it sees. We know that this has to be right from our own experience because what we define, the way that we define goodness, often involves a hatred for things that aren't good. We would not consider someone in Nazi Germany to be good because they looked at the things that Hitler was doing and they said, yeah, go ahead. You're okay. What we would say is that they were fundamentally not good. They were morally complicit in the things that Hitler did because they did not hate what he did but condoned what he did. The fact that they weren't burning with a passion against him was a flaw in them. And the same thing would be true in God if he did not oppose everything that was not good and right and true. He would be morally complicit in the rebellion against him that all sin represents. And God is not morally complicit. He is perfectly holy. And he is defined by a love that is first and foremost for himself as the source of all that is good and right. It's only our insensitivity to sin that keeps us from seeing this. That we don't deserve the embrace of God, but we deserve the consuming fire that burns from him against all that isn't good. You know the feeling that you get when you're around somebody who's clearly holding back from, from being complicit in something that is not good that's going down around you? Maybe, maybe you're in a part of a conversation that's slipping into gossip and you're you're nudging that way along with the conversation, but somebody else is just clearly holding out and they are unwilling to go there with you. You know that feeling that you get when you're around their holiness? 
That feeling multiplied to infinity is the feeling that we should get when we think about God and his holiness compared to us and our unworthiness and sin. And we don't feel that because we're blinded to our true condition. Here's the thing I want you to know. This, this description of what Israel experienced at Sinai is not a description of some primitive God that we've moved on from now that we have Jesus. It's a description of what God does and should look like to all unholiness. And until we square up with that, until we learn to accept it and to come to a sense of it, we aren't prepared to understand why the gospel is so beautiful to us, why we no longer have to relate to that God, to God, the one true God, exhibiting that kind of of holy terror. I recently read an essay by one of my favorite modern writers, uh, Annie Dillard, who wrote uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Some of you guys may have read. There's this essay in which she was she was just commenting on the fact that we've lost any sense of this sort of God, this transcendent God who is bigger than us and who must be against so much of what we stand for. Here's what Dillard, how Dillard put it. On the whole, I don't find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. And we don't do that, but you guys can just play along. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should, use, should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What she's getting at is, I think, the impact that this text should have on us. And we can't move ahead until we're willing to let this impact sit with us and impress us. This is who God remains to this day. He is not safe. He is eternally and perfectly committed to opposing everything that is not good and holy. And we are, in part, on our own, defined by what is not good by what is unholy. So God's consuming fire must burn against us unless, unless we stake ourselves to verses 22 to 24. Verses 18 to 21 are the before Jesus. Verses 22 to 24 are the after Jesus. If verses 18 to 21 communicate a sort of unapproachableness of God, a sort of um, outsider status, of being left out in the cold, of being stuck on the beach while Sandy rolls towards you and you have no, no hope of escape. If that's verses 18 to 21, then verses 22 to 24 are like a warm house in which you only hear a faint rumor about a storm. They are, they are the inside They are the loving embrace of the God who has taken our unholiness on himself and made it and made an end to it. I wish we had time to get into all the details in these three verses because they are beautiful. And every single one of them is chosen to point back to something we've already talked about in Hebrews. It's it's a beautifully, um, beautifully, a beautiful piece of, of literary art. You have come, he says, to Mount Zion 
to the center of Jerusalem, the mountain where God himself dwells, the temple that represents his presence, the secure city that represents his provision and the peace that comes to all who trust in him. That is where you have come. That is where Jesus has brought you into the Holy of Holies. You are an insider now. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. A fancy way of saying you have been invited to the party. You have come to the judge of all. Not under his judgment, but to him as one who is judged to be right and good and pure because of Jesus. You have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To those who are now already fully inside, who have run their race and are waiting on us. You are part of them, even though you can't see them, because you have been made one with Jesus. You have come ultimately to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The one who stands between that world to come and the world that we inhabit and brings that world to us and brings us into that world because Jesus himself has taken on what we deserve. He has draped himself over us so that the storm would pass over us affecting him and not us. That's what Jesus has done. We have come to the blood of Jesus which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As a reference to the Old Testament too. Abel's blood shed by his brother Cain, cries out for vengeance in that story. Jesus' blood speaks a better word because it cries out not for vengeance, but for forgiveness and peace and reconciliation, for welcome and warmth and embrace. Jesus' blood takes us inside. That's where we've come. Where at Sinai the voice that spoke was a terrible force driving those who heard it to beg it to stop the voice that speaks from jesus blood means life it means peace it means forgiveness where the mediator of that first covenant trembled with fear at the sight of god the mediator of our covenant jesus is not afraid but stands forever as the one who has perfectly made it possible for us to enter god's presence every detail In the first part of this has a parallel in the second and it's all about outsiders being made insiders because of Jesus. This is what a healed relationship with God looks like. This is where we've come. The passage next goes to where we're going. To a kingdom that can't be shaken. This shows up in verses 26 to 28. Now, what we've just talked about are these blessings that we're told are ours already, even though we can't fully see them. Like, we're told that we've been, we've been brought into God's presence, into the Mount Zion, the temple where he is, but it's hard to see that and connect with it. It's hard to sense it. We're told that we have been wiped clean by Jesus' blood, but we still feel guilty for the things that we've done. It's hard to connect with what's already ours. We are part of this world, in other words, that is heavenly, that not not that it's far off in the distance, up in the sky somewhere, but that it's another parallel world to the one that we live in, in this earthly world, and it's hidden. It hasn't been revealed. So one of the ways that the Bible describes this other world that we're connected to but can't fully see yet in lots of different ways. It talks about it as something that's hidden behind a curtain that's going to be revealed one day, as something in Revelation that's going to come down and just sort of plop down on what we can see, into what we can see. This passage gives us yet another image, and I love it. It's the image of a sort of sifter or a shaker. Um, whatever you call those things that you, you, know, you put chicken in to bread it and then you shake it to, so that just the chicken is left when you're going to fry chicken. Um, I'm from the South, so I think a lot about fried chicken. 
I think that's the image that we're supposed to get out of verses 26 and tw- through, through 28. It's, it's a weird reference in one sense. It's a reference back to a prophet that, that said, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And that this once more means the removal of things that are shaken. I think if the, un- underneath the, the language that doesn't immediately connect, I think that's the image we're to go for. Because what we all know is that this world is, is thoroughly tainted. We love it. There's so much about this life that is joyful to us and beautiful and, and that we, we don't want to lose, that we, we think is a gift from God and tells us who he is and what he's like. But we also know that even the things we love most are tainted. They're tainted because they're temporary. I love the leaves in the fall, especially in Nashville. They're just gorgeous. But it's like as soon as you start looking at them, they start disappearing. We took a trip for about a week uh, last week, and when we came back, it's like they're all, they're all gone after a week. They don't last. Meals are this way sometimes. Sometimes the things that we eat are just so delicious, but they, the, the, the joy that we get from them disappears as quickly as we eat them. I love Crystal Burgers, for example, but those things turn on you, right? They're delicious going down. If you can get them within two to three minutes off the grill... But within five minutes of, in, of eating them, let's just say they don't satisfy anymore. <laughs> Time with friends is this way, right? You get, you, let's say it's a, it's, it's a friend you haven't seen in a long time, and you see them, it's almost like as soon as you see them, you're already thinking about the fact that you're going to have to leave them. That even the joy you get from being around them is, is so temporary. Even our enjoyment of God is this way. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by the beauty of the gospel by the promise that he is for us in Jesus. And other times we're just totally cold to it. Everything that we love is also tainted or because it's temporary. It's tainted because it's threatened by evil without, by things that are beyond our control, that we can't control, that, that we can't stop, that threaten us and those that we love. It's, it's threatened by death itself. And the things that we love about this world are threatened by the evil that's in us because we are the problem. We aren't just threatened by problems outside of us. We are threatened by problems inside of us. We are guilty of the things that we despise. But what's coming is a full realization of the new world that's made possible by Jesus. What Jesus will do is take all the things about this world and put them into one of these shakers, right? Right? And he will shake it until all that's left is what is good and true and right and beautiful. All that's temporary, all that is evil, all that holds us back will be gone. That's where we're headed. So the question we close with is how do we get there? How do we get there? Because it's only good news if we can get in. What we said in even more detail this morning than we normally would is that we all, in ourselves, have things that deserve to be sifted. If, if the image of, of what's going to happen to everything in our experience is one where some things last and others don't, there is a lot in us. There is what defines us that will be sifted, left to ourselves. So how do we get a stake in the kingdom that will remain, that cannot be shaken? Without an answer to that question, this passage and this whole letter is not good news to us. Without an answer to this question, we stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, subject to a tempest and a storm and a blazing fire. How do we get in? 
this passage picks up on warnings that Hebrews has given to us time and time again. Verse 25 has, has the first thing I think we must see. To get in, to be insiders, to have a stake in what Jesus provides, we cannot refuse the one who is speaking. I think the point here is that we must listen to his word in faith. The Hebrews has talked a lot about faith. Faith is taking these things that have been promised, things that we can't see, and planting them at the center of your life, giving them a kind of substance, which I think is to make them as if they were already here, already true, to make your decisions and to think of yourself and your world as if what's promised to you is already here. That's what it would look like to listen faithfully, to not refuse the one who is speaking. What Israel did, he's he's hearkening back to earlier examples in this letter, Israel who heard God's promise, who heard his word, but failed to believe him and therefore failed to, to make it into his rest. He's calling us not to fail to do that, but to trust him, to stake ourselves to his promises being true. Oh, friends, please. Please do not believe this morning that God would not judge you. There's a sense in which you are hearing God's word this morning. You're hearing his voice. He is speaking to you through this, through this letter. And there are only two possible responses to him. You can hear and believe, or you can reject him as not true or trustworthy. There is no middle ground. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you have time to sit on the fence and decide where you stand with God as if by holding yourself back, you are not really making a decision. Because as you hold yourself back, as you balance on the fence of whether or not he is who he claims to be or can deliver what he promises to deliver, you are, in fact, making a statement about him. You are making a faith decision that there is not a God who would care that you withhold belief in him. That God, if he exists, doesn't care that you don't trust him. And that is not the God of the Bible. He cares. It would be unloving of me to suggest that you aren't complicit in all that will be sifted in God's coming kingdom. You will either be defined by your own failure or by Jesus' perfect success. And our God is a consuming fire. So trust in Jesus this morning. There is a final piece, though, to what it looks like for us to stake ourselves to the truth of these promises. It, it begins with faithful listening, with hearing God's word and believing God's word. But it also looks like grateful worship. The last, the last verse here, or the, or the second to the last verse, verse 28 says, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus offer worship. If you look at it in the original, what it's saying is that being grateful for what God gave you is how you worship God with reverence and awe. Being grateful equals worship. I think that's because gratitude recognizes that all that we have is what God gives us, that we bring nothing to the table but our own weakness and failure. What gratitude says is that everything we have has been given to us by God. Even the service that we offer to him is is based in and driven by a grace that he's given to us. Just like a father, I've heard example, a great example before, a father who gives his child a dollar to go and buy him a birthday present, right? It's sort of from the child and you appreciate that, but you'd be crazy to suggest that that child, that, that the father is now a dollar richer than he was before. He's not. 
And that's how we relate to God, not as those who serve him in order to make him obligated to us, but as those who give to him only what we have first received. And gratitude gets that. It worships him as the source of all that is good. Gratitude also worships him because it testifies that he is worthy of all that we are. What gratitude says, what gratitude says is that he's enough for us, that he's satisfying, that his promises are life in a way that nothing else is. Gratitude puts us in awe of the God who has made peace with us, even though we made war with him. Who would do that? Gratitude is an expression of awe and reverence for him. And that's what it looks like for us to stake ourselves to him. We all know what it's been like, probably have been guilty of this or have had this happen to us. To receive a gift or to give a gift that is not received well. Someone who sees it and doesn't really want it, doesn't really like it in the way that you'd hoped. Isn't that what we would be doing? To take what God has given to us in Jesus and be anything less than fully satisfied in it. As if he failed to give us what we really wanted what we thought we needed. Isn't that what we do every time we complain, every time we give in to fear or discontent? That is to fail to worship God. Our calling is to worship him by being grateful that we have received a kingdom that can't be shaken. That's how we get in. God help us. We want to be inside. We want the warmth, the embrace, the freedom that comes from being your children. We don't deserve it, but we know you have promised it to us, and so we claim it and ask that you would help our unbelief in it, that you would give us faithful ears that hear and love what we hear, that you would give us grateful hearts that are so satisfied in what you've given to us that we don't need to turn anywhere else, that you would receive this worship because we bring it to you through Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.